0: at our own risk. (laughs) Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we
1: dare not close our eyes.
0: Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome to the No Sleep Podcast video store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the warnings which foretell the terror. As season 13 rolls along, we uh, we, we have... Um, uh, I can't remember what I wanted to mention. Um, oh, I have something to share with everyone, and I can't seem to recall... It is but one night out of the year, and yet it is a night of such dark power and fear that a single night cannot contain it. This October, the No Sleep Podcast celebrates the spirit of Halloween with their 2019 Halloween Live Tour. Featuring 18 shows starting in Seattle on September 27th and throughout the Halloween month of October, including stops in places like Toronto, Canada, the birthplace of the No Sleep Podcast, in Estes Park, Colorado, at the Stanley Hotel, the haunted hotel where Stephen King was inspired to write The Shining. And the tour will conclude at the legendary El Ray Theatre in Los Angeles on Halloween night. Join David Cummings, Jessica McAvoy... David Alt and Nicole Goodnight on stage with a live score performed by Brandon Boone with special guests joining us at many of the venues. Tickets will be going on sale starting on Monday, August 5th. So go to thenosleeppodcast.com tour for a list of dates, venues, and links to tickets. Make your plans now to join the No Sleep Podcast live on their 2019 Halloween Live Tour. I sure I had something to say. Oh, I really should start writing these things down. Oh well. Since I can't think of anything to announce, let's start the show. So turn down the lights and grab the remote because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a man with a strange job. You see, it's his lot in life to serve as the final omen before a series of sinister and dangerous locations. In this tale, shared with us by author Evan Dicken, we learn it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mike Delgadio, Matthew Bradford, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, Dan Zapula, and Nicole Goodnight. So pack up the essentials, plan out the route, and get going, but make sure you pause to hear the foreshadowing when you reach the second to last stop.
2: I woke up in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, the morning sun leaking into my room through the slowly rotating blades of an old wall fan. I was younger than yesterday. It was a small matter to dirty up the windows of the old shop and scatter some rusty car parts out front. The inside took more work, and it was well afternoon before I had the place properly outfitted. Much of what I do depends on ambiance. It's so very important that the transition be seamless. I finished long before my first customers arrived, so I treated myself to some strips of beef turkey and another chapter of the Harlequin romance I was working through. The heroine, Cassandra, had just rescued her fiancé from the clutches of their mutual ex-lover. I dragged the old rocker onto the porch and sat down to wait. They came just on time. The family pulled up to the pumps in a new RV, only slightly worse the wear for rattling over miles of backcountry roads. I could tell they were city folk, the kind of people whose idea of roughing it was going without internet for a few days. My yellow-toothed grin was mostly for show. I didn't begrudge them their lives, not one bit. Their exit from the vehicle seemed almost rehearsed. Two young boys charged from the back door as soon as the RV ground to a halt. Hours of pent-up energy expelled in a burst of incoherent chatter. Their parents came next. Him in a green button-down shirt and double-stitched outdoorsman pants. Her in white shorts and a flower-print blouse. They were arguing about directions. The man only just now conceding that they were lost. The teen daughter slunk from the side door. Jeans and a ripped sweatshirt hanging loose on her skinny frame. She pulled out her phone and stared at it, the slump of her shoulders reminding me of a hostage who'd given up all hope of escape. I sought her gaze. Locking eyes, I spat a long brown stream of tobacco juice onto the cracked wood of the porch. She grimaced and climbed back into the RV. Smart girl. She might even make it through the night. Yeah, uh, excuse me, um...
3: I'm looking for Route 64. Uh, we turned off at 219 like three hours ago, and none of the roads back here seem to be on the map. Getting some scenery? The
2: man shot a nervous glance at his wife. She was on the other side of the lot, one kid in each hand. No help there. Where are you headed? Oh, uh, we got
3: reservations at Pine Ridge Campgrounds, uh, just outside of Lewisburg.
2: You got yourselves turned around. That map ain't gonna do you much good in these parts. I jabbed at it with a gnarled finger. The man seemed to deflate at my prodding.
0: Ah, damn. Well, uh, do you happen to know how to get back to Route 64?
2: I sat back, breath whistling through the gap in my teeth. In truth, I had no idea where Route 64 was. But it didn't matter. That's not where they were going, anyway. I relaxed and let the words pour out of me. The man nodded, not really listening. Finally, the meandering course of my directions ran into a road he recognized. Ah, great. I think I can take it from there. He brightened, relief plain in his watery blue eyes. I tipped my hat, but he'd already turned to call for his wife. She herded the children back into the RV and they pulled away in a cloud of dust, spinning wheels pelting the roadside foliage with a rain of gravel. I watched them go. They would never reach their campsite. The family of cannibals who lived up the road would see to that. They didn't exist, of course. The cannibals. Not where these people were from, anyway. But a few miles down the road? Well, anything was possible. By the time I stashed the old rocker and picked up the car parts, the wet, earthy smells of the backwoods had been replaced by the salty tang of Mexican hardpan. I didn't mind, since it meant I could keep the windows dirty. The only real work was to restock the shelves with Spanish language magazines and candy. I was very thorough. It would be embarrassing to have the next group stumble across a map of scenic West Virginia wedged between the racks of Pachiclita and Bubulubu, The sound of barking alerted me to their arrival. I had a dog now. I smoothed back my hair and stepped behind the counter. They came in a few seconds later. A half-dozen college students, tanned from days spent on warm coastal beaches. I looked up from the counter, my expression blank. The biggest one, probably the first to die, waved and smiled. Habla ingles. No. I shook my head, working to keep my face slack. The others spread through the store in couples. I heard them marveling at how different it was from the minimarts back home. If only they knew. The big one's smile was wide as he approached the counter, a mousy-looking blonde in glasses in his wake.
4: Um, we're looking for a lake. Lago Diamante. It's supposed to be near here. Esta
2: equipe? I pointed down the road in the direction they were traveling. Si. Cinco kilométro. My eyes flicked to the blonde, who was staring at one of the other boys, this one with darker hair and a brooding, troubled look. Her gaze shifted to the redhead on his arm, and the ghost of a frown wrinkled the skin between her eyes. Ah, young love. The big one followed my gaze, and his smile slipped for a moment. I licked my lips to unnerve him. Ambiance. Let's get the hell out of here.
5: We should have stayed at the resort.
2: The blonde shivered, despite the heat, wilting under my scrutiny. It was like a standing ovation.
3: Stop freaking out. The guy said there were hardly ever any other tourists there. You wanted to see the real Mexico, right?
5: I know. It's just that I've got this bad feeling.
2: She was right, of course. The creature that slumbered beneath the Lago Diamante awoke to feed for only a few days every century. Scientists would probably term it a holdover from Cretaceous, but it wasn't. Not really. The Earth it called home was a dark place where winter lasted decades and summers withered on the vine. I've never been there myself, but I'd seen it in movies. Well, when I still watched movies. I don't anymore. I just can't stand that they never get it right. Nightclub vampires, backwoods werewolves, zombies, and axe murderers living cheek to jowl with humanity. Maybe once, but not now. I've never been able to manage the suspension of disbelief required to swallow that conceit. After all, I was there. Well, nearby at least. They get that right at least. I think that on some visceral level, people recognize you can't step into the pit without having somewhere, someone, to bridge the gap. It can be anything or anyone. A decrepit gas station, crumbling county store, a block of boarded-up tenement buildings, an old blind man on a creaky rocker. Something to show that here is no longer there. I'm everywhere, if you just know where to look. It's flattering, really. My unseen dog barked as the tourists left. The deep, snarly ruckus cut off in mid-bellow as I went somewhere else. It was early evening now, the air chill and crisp, with just a hint of a winter storm rolling in. I only had a few hours to clean up for my next guests. The car parts came out of storage to be polished and placed in the garage with an assortment of tools and empty oil cans. The Mexican sweets were replaced with a few boxes of good old American candy bars and a few out-of-date Sports Illustrated magazines. A marked-up calendar of covered bridges completed the look, and I settled back for a couple more strips of jerky and another chapter of my novel. It was getting good. Cassandra had just revealed to her fiancé that while he was imprisoned, she had fallen in love with his twin brother. Nonfiction usually isn't my thing, but sometimes I like to indulge. I must have dozed off, because the first I heard of my next customers was a knock on the window. I dropped the novel behind the counter and opened the door, a gust of icy autumn wind almost tearing it from my grip. There was a couple outside muffled against the cold by layers of sweaters and scarves. I ushered them in, their expressions almost pathetically grateful. Oh, thanks. Our car broke down about five miles up the road. I I thought we weren't going to make it. The man unwound his scarf, revealing cheeks chapped with windburn. He had a kind face, but then again, so did I. It's a poor night to be out in the colds. With a nor'easter like this, there's like to be four or five feet of snow on the ground by the Mara. I should get you two in the town before it really starts coming down. What about our car? The woman looked skeptical about my prediction. I smiled at her, letting my rough-spun charm do the convincing. The roads won't be clear till mid-morning, at least. Looks like you're stuck here for the night. If you want, I can call ahead into town. Sharon's likely to have room in the hotel, it being an off-season and
3: all. The man glanced at the name on my coveralls. Hey, thanks, Chad. Hey, if it's not too much trouble, is there anywhere along the way we could get something to eat? Yeah, there's a diner right next to the hotel. Best sausage in the county.
2: They spent a moment in the type of hushed conversation that only people who have been together for years can master, where a half-finished sentence or a slight widening of the eyes can speak volumes. I watched them with a smile. Thinking maybe one day I'd leave all this, and find a girl I could talk with like that. Someone as much unlike Cassandra as possible. I had too many twin brothers to risk a girl like her. The woman turned back to me.
4: Thank you so much. Can you give
2: us a ride? Yeah. All part of the job. I listened to their story on the way into town nodding at all the appropriate points and talking just enough to continue the conversation comfortably. The man thanked me again when I dropped them off outside the diner. It's nothing, just don't forget to try the sausage. (laughs) Laughing, they went inside to enjoy what might be their last meal. During the off-season, the people of this town got a bit strange. Travelers had been known to go missing, the rusted wrecks of their cars not discovered until the spring thaw. There's a lot of woods out here, especially with a fresh carpet of snow turning the forest into a maze of featureless drifts. If someone were to get lost in conditions like that, their body might never be found. The same might be said if they were dragged into the forest as a sacrificial offering. There was a time when the trees selected the victims, but people got tired of giving up their own and took matters into their own hands. I didn't even bother picking up the couple's car. When I got back, I was in West Virginia again. It was late, the sky dark, save for a thin sliver of moon peeking from a blanket of heavy clouds. There wasn't much time, so I tossed around a few handfuls of dirt and kicked the car parts back into the yard. I stepped back inside, just as someone crashed through the bushes around back. I grabbed my flashlight and shotgun before heading out onto the porch. She'd need them later. Her breathing came in the soft, shuddering gasps of someone trying to be quiet after having run a long distance. My flashlight beam stabbed into the darkness, reflecting from the tear tracks that cut twin paths down her grime-covered face.
1: Who the hell's out there?
2: Come out or I'll shoot! I played the beam across the bushes, even though I knew where she was. The girl broke cover like a startled bird. I could practically feel the desperate terror pouring off her
6: mister they killed my parents they ate them they've got my brothers
2: her eyes shone with tears but she didn't break down this girl had spunk just like cassandra i stepped down from the porch what the hell are you talking about bear got your folks no not bears it was people i shook my head as i moved closer to her
5: now just relax We'll go inside and
1: get you something to drink. They're right behind me! Don't fear none. I've lived in these hills my whole life. There ain't nothing to worry about.
2: I gaped as a rusty saw blade burst through my chest. Blood welled from the wound, and I fell forward to reveal the grinning madman behind me. The girl bolted for the house. I heard the two of them crashing around inside for a few minutes, and hoped they didn't break the place up too bad. Things got quiet soon enough. Heavy footsteps moved through the shop, searching. I turned my head to watch. Being dead was no reason to miss the show. The back door eased open and the girl crept out, hands over her mouth to stifle the noise of her breathing. One of the boards creaked as she moved from the porch onto the grass. Her fingers pressed into my neck as she bent down, checking for a pulse. Bless her. I was quite dead so she slipped the shotgun from my nerveless grasp glass shattered and she spun to unload a wild shot into the back of my shop the cannibal was fast leaping from the porch with his machete raised the girl fired the second barrel the force of the buckshot spinning the madman in the air one of his boots clipped my ribs as he tumbled over me to crash into the brush beyond to the girl's credit She kicked his machete away before moving in to see if he was dead. When he reared up, all bloody and shrieking, he was only able to grab her sweatshirt. Her gunstock cracked across the cannibal's face as he struggled to stand. She hit him twice more before he tore the shotgun from her hands and tossed it into the brush. He pushed her away, and she sprawled onto her back. I could almost hear the music swelling as he advanced on her, his face a pulpy, grinning mess. The girl crawled backwards, the only sound her soft gasps, and the crunch of the cannibal's boots on dry grass. She stopped, her fingers brushing up against something laying amidst the trampled foliage. I felt like a proud father as the girl lunged to her feet, teeth bared, the cannibal's machete gleaming in her hands. Screaming, she hacked into his neck, blood fountained as his body slumped to the ground. His head rolled twice before fetching up against a tree, its expression almost bemused. The girl stood for a moment, blade held in front of her, ready for the headless murderer to rise again. When he didn't, she bent to retrieve my flashlight from the grass. She walked out of my field of vision, but I could hear her inside the shop looking for my keys. I stood up, pulled the saw blade from my chest, and nipped over to slit the throat of the cannibal hiding in the truck bed. It's against the rules, but what can I say? I'm a sucker for Spunk. I barely got his body into the brush before my pickup roared to life, headlamps draping the trees in twisting shadows. I couldn't help but grin as she pulled out on the road and back toward the cannibals' cabin. They still had her brothers, after all. I knew she could do it. This girl was something special. My Cassandra. I walked out onto the dirt road to watch the tail lamps disappear around the bend. I had a feeling she'd be back someday. Older, harder, her life shaped by the echoes of this night. I wondered if she'd recognize me for what I was, and if I'd have the courage to say something, even if she did. A fluttery lightness filled my chest, prickling my arms and scalp with nervous energy. I sighed. That was for another day. For now. I had work to do. The sounds of the sputtering motor faded into the distance. My shop was a mess, furniture and racks upended, bullet and machete holes in the walls. I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep before I got the place fixed up. Tomorrow was always coming, and in my line of work, everything's in the details. Still, it would have gone faster with another pair of hands.
0: sibling rivalry can be stressful when you're a child. If you're the younger sibling of an elder brother, it can lead to bullying and torment. In situations like that, what you need is an ally. And in this tale, shared with us by author E. Blackburn, that's exactly what one little girl finds after her brother goes too far. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, David Alt, and Ellie Hirschman. So grab hold of your nightlights and stay safe, because we're about to meet my childhood friend, the Haze Beast.
6: My second worst memory is my brother holding me underwater. We were playing in the above-ground pool in our backyard when he dared me to hold my breath while under for as long as I could. When I said I didn't want to, he held me under until I beat my tiny fists against him. I can still feel the chill of the water and his rough, hard hands gripping my shoulders as I kicked. I can still feel the sandy bottom of the pool as my feet scuffed on the rubbery floor if I think hard enough about it. My brother, Dakota, was not a nice person. He never was a nice person. He tried to weasel his way out of getting in trouble after our dad yanked him off me, then pulled me out of the pool. Dakota lost TV privileges for the week for that stunt and got threatened with military school for what had to be the fifth time that summer. That was a shitty way to end our vacation days. My absolute worst memory began that night, and it spanned about a week. My bedtime was earlier than my brother, so I was in bed, curled up under my aerial blanket when he came in. I could never shake his cold blue stare when I'd kept him from getting his way. I should have been used to that look, but I never was.
4: You're why mom died.
6: My seashell light cast deep orange shadows in my room, but Dakota seemed dark no matter where he was.
4: She saw how ugly you are, so she died.
6: No. oh. Dad told me that my mom died so I could live, and I'd see her in heaven someday. Dad trumped Dakota every time. Dakota glared at me and patted across my rug. His gaze lingered for a minute before he spoke.
4: You took my TV.
6: He ripped the seashell nightlight out of the wall.
4: I take your stupid nightlight.
6: No! That light was what kept monsters away.
4: I'll give it back if you tell Dad you wanted me to hold you under.
6: Dakota held the light in one hand. I said nothing, staring in terror at my big brother.
4: Have fun getting eaten, retard.
6: Alone in the dark, I felt fear. The shadows grew in sharpness, in darkness, and here I was, trapped under my comforter like a soft, fluffy prison. Tears welled up in my eyes at the thought of every monster imagined creeping from under the bed, from the closet, even from behind the dresser. Then I heard a voice.
7: What's wrong, little one?
6: Carefully, I pulled the comforter down a little to look for the source of the voice. The curtains ruffled by my window. The thin fabric settled on top of something I couldn't quite see. The shape was funny, and it looked like a living thing made up of heat waves, like the ones on the road when it's hot outside. It slipped in through my closed bedroom window, just slipped through the glass, like water or a bead curtain. Broad, clawed handprints pressed into the carpet to my bed.
7: Hello. Hello.
5: Who are you?
6: A patch of carpet swished under an enormous, invisible tail.
7: I am the Haze Beast.
6: Uh, A
5: beast? Uh, Are you going to
6: eat me? He snorted and shook himself like a dog. Mm. The curtains ruffled against him. I heard his ears slapping against the side of his head.
0: Oh,
7: why, I would never... I don't eat sweet little girls like you. You can call me Hazy, if you like.
6: I could hear him approach, see his hands and feet leave large, four-fingered prints on my carpet.
7: Who was that boy that took your light?
6: Dakota. I inched out from my blankets. The haze beast's tail thumped once, twice, against the carpeted floor.
7: Oh my... The same boy in the pool.
6: I remember my eyes going wide, sitting up in my tiny bed. (gasps) You know about that?
7: Know about it? (sighs) I saw it happen.
6: Warm breath chuffed my arm. He left a large, long dent in my aerial comforter as he rested his head on my bed. I could kind of see him now. He still looked like heat waves rising off the road, but shaped like a long, bony dragon.
7: I'm sorry I couldn't help you. Grown-ups can get scared if they see me.
6: Five-year-old me reached out and carefully stroked his muzzle. He didn't seem to mind.
5: It's okay. Daddy came and got me.
7: Good. Your daddy is a good man.
5: He's the best daddy. He got me that nightlight.
7: Ah, really? Tell me about your nightlight.
6: I could hear the smile in his voice. I kept on petting him. His skin felt like an old leather couch, soft and worn out. I told Hazy all about how Dad had gotten the lamp on vacation to the beach. The story went that he'd met with King Triton himself and told him about my bad dreams and the monsters in my room. The seashell nightlight was a gift from King Triton, and the light in the shell would keep monsters away.
5: But my light is gone, so the monsters will get me.
7: Oh, no, no. I won't let that happen.
6: Hazy's long, bulky form walked away and turned itself on my rug. The blue shag flattened under his weight.
7: I'll stay right here until morning. No monster will get past me. Really? Really. Good night.
6: The flattened mass of carpet grew as Hazy stretched out.
7: Hmm. What is your name, little one? I forgot to ask. Talia. What a wonderful name. Well then, good night, Talia.
6: Good night, Hazy. I slept through the night and awoke the next morning to find Hazy was gone. Dad made chocolate chip pancakes with scrambled eggs for breakfast and told me he was going to drain the pool that afternoon. Dakota had returned my nightlight while I was eating. I was grateful, even though he'd broken it at the base. It was an easy fix for Daddy, though. It was back to keeping monsters at bay that night. Hazy, however, came back to see me again that very evening. With a ruffle of curtains, Hazy's clear form melted into my room via the window. Four broad paws and a tail print showing up in the carpet one by one.
7: Hello, Talia.
6: I thought he was only a strange dream but his return to my bedroom cemented how real he was. I beamed and crawled to the end of my bed to see him better, a hard feat seeing that he was near invisible.
5: Hazy, you came
6: back!
7: Of course. I promised to protect you from monsters, didn't I?
6: His form stretched out on my rug, tail wagging at the tip only slightly.
7: I see your light is back. How about I tell you a story?
6: I snuggled into my bed, ready for the tale only a dragon could tell. Gently, Hazy told me stories in his soft, British voice. At least, I think it was British. It may have been Irish, but I don't know for sure. His tales of swimming with sea monsters and dancing with demons made me stare at his vague form in awe. I fell asleep, safe and sound, with my friendly dragon not far away. Dakota wasn't a demon, but he had his moments. It wasn't long after the pool incident, two or three days after, that Dakota acted up again. While I was excited about starting school, Dakota was not. <laughs> he didn't want to go to middle school or any school at all. He was always in those classes for the kids that need extra attention. When we went back to school shopping, I was over the moon. I couldn't wait to get everything I needed for my new classes. Dakota sulked nearby as I looked for everything I could find that was even loosely based on The Little Mermaid.
0: This is retarded. Dakota, don't use that word.
6: My dad gave him a stern frown. It's retarded. I fucking hate
0: school. Dakota!
6: My dad grabbed him by the arm before dragging him out of earshot of me. I just kept looking for a backpack I liked. Dakota and my dad continued to argue. Again, the term military school was mentioned. Dakota's punishment was the most boring supplies Dad could find. Nothing but black and gray. Even when Dad eased up a little and let Dakota choose his own backpack, he pitched a fit and wound up with a black pack. I got, of course, a Little Mermaid backpack, along with a 21-pack of crayons. That night, in my bed, I showed Hazy everything with pure glee. See? It's like my bed. I held up my backpack to the wavy form of my friend. He'd slowly become more visible as days went by. You know the first Predator movie where the Predator's invisible but can kind of be seen? Easy was at that point of
7: visibility. I see. It's lovely, Talia. So, you go to school tomorrow?
5: Yeah, I'm gonna be in real school, not just kindergarten.
7: That's wonderful. That's a big step towards being a grown-up.
5: Are you a grown-up?
7: Well, I am quite old.
6: Did you ever go to school? He was silent, front legs crossed at the foot of my bed. He tapped a claw on my bed frame. Hmm,
7: not how you know it. I went to school with many children, and the school was one big room. I was about your age when, well, I changed.
6: I remember how alarming that was to hear. Hazy, a dragon, going to school with children? Like,
5: invisible and
6: stuff? He chuckled at me, but he didn't have time to elaborate as I heard the door to my bedroom open. I immediately played dead, not sure if it was my dad or my brother. The prickles on the back of my neck told me that my brother was indeed the one in my room, staring at me coldly. I worried that he'd try to retake my light. That wasn't his plan, it seemed. My backpack was very slowly pulled off my bed. Something hit the floor and Dakota scurried out. I counted to ten before moving in case he came back. When he didn't, I carefully sat up and looked around. Hazy's form was as still as a statue, as clear as glass, but there.
7: Talia, he took something. What? A little box with sticks inside.
5: (gasps) My crayons!
7: crayons. Oh, for coloring. I forgot. Would you like them back?
5: But but, Dakota doesn't want me in his room.
7: Well, how about I get them back? He won't even know it was me. Really? Of course. Stay here, Talia.
6: I watched as Hazy's clear form stood from the floor, and I got a good idea of just how big he was. He carefully popped open my bedroom door with his nose and slipped out to the room across the hall. I could see the end of his tail still inside my room, a shimmery point with a tuft at the end. I'm sure he had to be twenty feet long from tail to nose. He returned shortly with a yellow box of crowns in one hand, a paw. I'm not sure, really, but he handed the box to me and huffed.
7: (sighs) Your brother's room is a mess. And why does he have... Two beds. Two? One upon the other.
5: Oh, bunk beds! We had this same room a year ago.
6: Hazy shut my door with his back foot.
7: Why do you have your own room now?
5: Uh, Dakota wanted both beds. He peed the bed and told Dad it was me.
6: My friend growled, his form rippled gently.
7: How awful.
6: His sudden icy tone had me scrambling for a happy thing to say. Hazy would never hurt me, he told me so. But I still didn't like him being angry. I
5: got my own room, so it's okay. I'm a big girl, so I don't pee the bed.
7: Dakota does.
5: It's a secret.
6: Dad had to do a load of sheets just for Dakota's bed every two or three days. Mine only got changed every weekend, usually on Sundays, so I'd have a whole week of new sheets.
7: Ah, yes, of course. But you'd best be getting sleep now, dear.
5: Okay, but what if Dakota comes back? Hmm,
7: fair point.
6: He turned towards the door, his lanky form hard to see, but still as present as before.
7: I can stop him easily.
6: Hazy slumped his body against my door and wall, locking it from opening.
7: Good night, Talia.
6: Now, because of the different times we got home, Dakota would be back before me for quite a bit. I made sure to always have my own house key with me because Dakota would, often, try to lock me out. Dad had a job that kept him out of the house until five, but we were never alone for long. Dakota only had to throw the deadbolt on the front door once before Dad took it down. I got a key for the front and back door after that. Kindergarten was rough. The first day of real school started up with trying to make friends that weren't hazy. It wasn't easy, but I tried. I didn't want to be like Dakota and scare my classmates away. Since it was the first week of class, we got to do drawings for our morning warm-up. The prompt was to draw a picture of our family. Since white crayon didn't show up on white paper, I used gray and pressed as gently as I could. There stood my family, all three of us humans and my dear dragon. I decided not to draw Mommy as an angel in the sky because Dad cried when I did that in a drawing before. Hopping off the school bus that afternoon, I couldn't wait to show Dad the drawing I'd made. I could see it as something to go on the fridge. Hopefully, out of Dakota's reach. He didn't look up from watching the TV when I got home. I went straight to my room anyway. Of course, Hazy was the first one to see my drawing. I could tell he liked it because he wagged his tail.
7: Oh. Talia. Talia. Is that me?
6: Yeah. I giggled at his wagging tail. It was going so fast it made a flip-flip noise against my rug.
5: You're like a puppy. Puppy? Yeah. You wag your tail when you're happy. Like a puppy.
6: I giggled, then burst out laughing (laughs) at the idea of Hazy doing tricks or even playing fetch.
5: Daddy says that a dog is a big respo- respo Respop-
7: Responsibility.
5: Yeah. Dakota doesn't like animals anyways. I don't want him to hurt a puppy.
7: Has... has your brother hurt animals before?
6: I shrugged. I was too young to understand why it was terrible, but I knew it was terrible.
5: Sometimes Dakota throws rocks at rabbits. One time he picked up a cat by the tail.
6: Now that I'm a lot older, I know it was more that my brother threw a cat by the tail. Said cat never came near our house after that. It was a friendly cat, too. But it never seemed to come around after that happened.
7: That's awful.
5: Hazy, can you keep a secret?
7: Yes, of course.
5: Daddy took Dakota's BB gun away because he shot at the dog down the street. The dog cried like I did when I skinned my knee.
6: That incident was what caused the first threats of military school. A warm breath huffed against my neck. I hugged Hazy around his throat, and I felt a broad-clawed pad against my back. His whole hand was wider than my back.
7: Animals feel pain like you and I do. Only rotten people hurt something for fun.
6: I wondered as Hazy's scent of wood smoke and honeysuckle washed over me, what he meant by rotten. Suddenly, Hazy lifted his head to the door.
7: Your brother is coming. I think he heard us.
5: Are you going to leave?
7: No, no, dear. I just have to be quiet and stay still. We can't have him see me.
6: Okay. Soon enough, Dakota did come into my room. His cold eyes stared me down, and I clutched my picture behind my back. Who are you talking to?
5: My friend Hazy.
6: That's a stupid name.
5: Hazy's not stupid. He's a dragon.
4: Dragons aren't real.
6: He unfolded his arms and glared at me. What's that? Nothing. He made a move for my drawing.
4: Gimme it, brat. No! Gimme it.
6: Grasping one of my arms in a tight fist, Dakota wrenched the picture from me and held it high out of my reach. No! I jumped in vain to get it back, earning a knee to my chest that knocked me back.
4: Shut up, I'm just looking.
6: Dakota held the drawing in both hands, frowning.
4: You draw weird. What's that gray thing?
6: That's Hazy, please give it back. Tears blurred my vision. I felt Hazy's warmth behind me. Dakota glanced at me, then back at the drawing. In a swift, angry motion, he tore my picture in two. Crumpling the picture halves up, Dakota sneered.
4: Dragons aren't real, retard.
5: You're so mean! You're such a crybaby.
6: He turned and left me on my rug, closing my door behind him. Hazy was on me in a second.
7: Oh, Talia, I'm so sorry.
6: Why'd you let Dakota do that? He hugged me, now looking more like blurry static than anything.
7: I didn't know he would rip your drawing. If I did, I would have...
6: He stopped, head to the door again.
7: Is he coming back? No, he came by for a moment.
6: My dragon strode forward and grasped my door handles. He gave it a turn and tug, only to be met with a solid door.
2: Does your door
7: lock? No. It won't open.
6: Hazy tried again, pulling until the wood groaned.
7: Talia, I think you locked us in.
6: I hugged my pillow tight. Hazy again tried the door, but it only made more noise and earned a muffled shut up from Dakota. The sound of the TV grew loud enough to be felt through the floor.
7: Shh, It's all right. When does your father come home?
5: Five, but... I gotta go.
7: Go? Oh. Oh, my. Can I open the window and hold you out?
6: Daddy said the window's painted shut. Hazy's form thumped across the floor, opening my toy box in the corner.
7: Let's see. Uh, ah, all right. Uh, try here.
6: As he turned to me, he held up a little plastic pail that Dad got me for my last birthday.
7: In there? It's better than peeing on yourself, I should think.
6: Hazy set the bucket down and turned his back to me.
7: I won't look, I promise.
6: Still sniffling but not having better options other than going in the corner or my pants, I used the bucket. I cried the whole time, and Hazy only turned around when I said I was done. Daddy's gonna be mad at me!
7: He shouldn't be. You didn't have a choice, Talia.
5: Dakota's gonna be in trouble when Daddy gets home.
7: As he should, that rotten boy. I
6: cuddled into Hazy's arms, breathing in his smell and closing my eyes. Hazy nuzzled my hair, humming.
7: Do you have any homework?
5: Yeah, it's the math packet that I gotta finish for Friday.
7: Hmm, wow. That sounds difficult. You could work on that until your father gets home.
6: I pulled away from Hazy and climbed onto my bed for my backpack. I got to work quickly, Hazy laying nearby. He was good at math, but never gave me answers. He only guided me as we waited on the clock for my dad. I'd finished up that night's and the next, starting on Wednesdays, when the sound of the front door opening got my attention. Daddy's home! I leaped down from my bed into the door, trying the knob. It didn't work, of course. I just wanted to make noise and get out of the pee-bucket bedroom I was in. Daddy! I pummeled the door with my tiny fists until I could hear him calling out to me.
0: Talia? What oh, did. Ah, oh, Dakota!
6: Dad, it wasn't me!
0: Bullshit!
6: I covered my mouth in shock. My dad rarely ever swore. She was.
0: Go but... sit at the table. I'll deal with you later.
6: I didn't. I didn't do anything!
0: Downstairs! Now! Fine! Talia.
6: Dad opened his arms and I ran right into them. He didn't smell like hazy, he smelled like his aftershave and laundry soap. Wonderful, I'm familiar.
0: Oh, baby, are you okay? I'm sorry I wasn't here.
5: I'm okay, Daddy. (laughs) Dakota ripped up my drawing and I had to pee in a bucket. Bucket? I couldn't
6: get out, Daddy.
0: Shh, baby, baby, it's okay. You're not in trouble.
6: Rubbing my back, he scooped me up off the floor.
0: Okay, sweetie, you show me that bucket and stay up here for a while. I'll have a talk with Dakota, then you can come down for dinner, okay?
6: He set me on my bed and I nodded, frowning.
5: It's by my toys.
0: Okay. Now you just stay here. I'll be back up soon.
6: Heading for the door, he left it ajar behind him and carried away the chair that had been wedged under the knob. I didn't budge, but I listened. There was an argument brewing downstairs and I wasn't sure where Hazy was.
5: Hazy?
7: I'm here.
6: His weight pressed into the mattress next to me.
7: I'll stay here all night.
6: Are
5: you here all the time?
7: I come by to see if you're home, but I'm usually in the woods.
6: Muffled yelling came up the stairs. I hunkered down close to my dragon.
0: I've tried everything, Dakota. You don't even care.
6: Dakota said nothing, but I could picture him in my mind. Arms crossed, chin to his chest glaring with those icy eyes.
0: You won't talk to the therapist I took you to. You won't talk to me. You won't listen to me. And you keep harassing your sister. You think I was joking about military school? You're going on Sunday.
6: Hazy hugged me tight as I snuggled into his warmth.
0: Dad, you can't. Too late. I've given you a ton of chances.
6: Dad, Dad, please.
0: Go to your room.
4: Fuck you. All you care about is that stupid, retarded baby. Don't show you me. I was here first. You like her more
6: than me. I hate you. I hugged Hazy tightly. He shushed me, his scent and warmth calming me as I tried not to cry. Dakota kept shouting the whole way to his bedroom. Dad gave him the same treatment that he'd given me. Chair under the doorknob. Seeing as the upstairs bedrooms all had windows painted shut, Dakota was as stuck as I had been. Carefully, Hazy pulled away from me, and my dad entered the room. Sighing, he sat on the bed next to me and pulled me into a side hug.
0: Tell ya, sweetie. Dakota's going away for a while. Why? Well, you see, Dakota's... Well, he, he's not nice. He's always doing bad things, and he's not trying to do good things. I want to help him, but I'm not... um, hmm, uh, Smart enough to...
6: I gasped. How could my dad not know what to do? He knew everything, didn't he?
0: So I'm gonna call some smarter people and they will help Dakota. They'll teach him how to be a good person better than I can, but that means he's gonna be um uh, gone for a while. I love him as much as I love you, but I can't help him right now. Those people at the special school can, you understand?
6: He smiled sadly at me. I didn't have a reply. Dakota was always mean, but he was my big brother.
5: Does he have to go?
0: Oh, it's not fun for me either, kiddo. But you sometimes have to do scary or sad things so other people can be happy.
6: Patting me on the back, he stood.
0: Now, how about chicken nuggets for dinner?
6: I couldn't turn down nuggets. The next day at school was a blur. Dad told me as he dropped me off that he'd try to be home early so I wouldn't be left alone for long with Dakota. The deal was that if he were going to be on his regular home time, he'd call the house a bit after I would be home and let me know. I didn't like it, but there weren't other options on such short notice. Gray clouds bubbled overhead, but it didn't rain until that night. It wasn't a fun day knowing my big brother was going to be sent away for a while. I didn't see Dakota on the couch when I got home. I guessed that he was pouting, or he wasn't back yet. That struck me as weird because he was always home before me. I didn't know what to think of that, but I did know that I had math work to finish. Heasy? I made my way upstairs to my room. I was greeted with my bedroom door left wide open. I never left my door open out of habit. I couldn't see my dragon. Not that I could most of the time. Heasy? I set my bag on the floor and watched my window for him either to come through or stand up. Behind me, my door clicked shut and I turned. Hazy. There, still in his shoes and backpack, was my brother. He dropped his bag on the floor as he came at me. I didn't have time to get away. Dakota grabbed my shirt and tossed me like a rag doll onto the bed. I screamed, but he covered my mouth with his sweaty hand. Shut up. I was pinned under my brother's heaviness, and no amount of thrashing could help me get loose. I bit his hand and shrieked. Easy! Suddenly my pillow was mushed against my face, and it was getting harder to breathe. I got one of my knees into Dakota's crotch, giving me time to inhale as deep as my little lungs could.
5: Easy! Easy,
7: help!
6: (laughs) Dakota reared back and slapped me. Hard enough to hurt, but not enough to shut me up. Your stupid
4: dragon isn't real, so shut up. Shut up!
6: The pillow was back and I began to fight again, struggling and losing strength as I did.
4: I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I
6: hate- His shouts cut out as the world around me went black. It was like I was in the pool all over again, running out of time, air, and strength. There was a throaty, weird, warbling growl from my window. The pillow lifted as my big brother turned to the sound.
1: Dakota, you are one rotten boy.
6: My brother rolled off of me, and I lifted my head, gasping for air. Then, as if appearing through a fog, I saw Hazy as he really was. His skin was dappled like a horse, but hairless, and all of his limbs were mottled black. He was covered in scars that left white, raised lines all over his body. A long face like a borzoi, but with slits for a nose halfway up the muzzle. Long donkey ears pinned back in anger. A mop of greasy, slate-gray hair sat on a round, humanoid head. His whole body looked long, stretched out like a reptile. His long, camel-like neck curved so he was looking down his muzzle at Dakota. He rose to his back feet, shoulders touching the ceiling— His eyes near solid black. The only real color to them were the thin purple irises that fixed hungrily on my brother.
7: Rotten boys are my favorites.
6: He coiled and lunged, revealing a gaping mouth full of sharp, tiny teeth. Dakota didn't have time to scream as Hazy, my dragon, held one of his arms in each bare-pawed fist. Hazy opened his jaws wider than a snake and shoved Dakota's head and shoulders in his mouth. His legs kicked, but Hazy grabbed his knees and pushed him deeper into his long, writhing throat. Hazy reached for the backpack at the foot of my bed and gulped that down too. Jaws flexed like a hungry snake who'd finally found a meal. It was all over in less than ten seconds. There I lay, on my Little Mermaid bedcloths watching in horror as my imaginary friend ate my big brother in a few hard swallows. His stomach bulged under him, round and twitching slightly with the death throes of his meal. You... you ate Dakota! Hazy cracked his long, sagging neck with a loud series of pops.
7: I did. He can't hurt you in my belly.
5: But why?
6: His chest and stomach rolled like a slinky in a sock. I think I saw a foot kicking outward. Hazy's wide eyes fixed on me, ears back like a scared cat.
7: He was a rotten boy. He never would have been good, Talia.
5: What am I gonna tell daddy? Hmm.
7: Good question.
6: Hazy sank into the floor, frowning. He crossed his front legs, tail thumping on the carpet behind him. I got a good look at him then, this strange creature... He seemed at best a cross between a moray eel, a horse, and a bear, with enough human in him to look wrong. Hazy was certainly not a dragon. A claw curled to his lip in thought, eyes glancing at the floor.
7: Tell him Dakota never came home. Would that work?
5: Daddy will miss him, Hazy.
7: (sighs) He will. I'm so sorry.
5: Can you give Dakota back?
7: No. He's inside of me. He can't come back.
6: I crawled forward on my knees. Black and purple stared at me with nothing but kindness, and in that second, I feared him the most.
7: Easy. Yes, Talia?
5: You're not going to eat me too, are you? What?
7: Of course not. I only eat rotten children. You're far too sweet, Talia.
6: It finally sank in that he didn't just mean my personality. Sitting up on his haunches with his tail flicking softly against my rug, Hazy clasped one hand over the other, frowning.
7: I really am sorry for eating your brother. I know you loved him, but he was hurting you. He'd have done worse to others had I not eaten him. Children that are rotten like him always turn into rotten grown-ups, and rotten grown-ups do horrible things. Hazy? (laughs) Yes, Talia?
5: Are you going to eat my kids when I grow up?
6: Hazy stared hard at me, a lavender tongue darting out.
7: Not if they're as sweet as you.
6: With that, the dappled, friendly, awful beast slipped out of my window via the glass. His paw prints left huge dents on my carpet, as always. Dad came home to me, alone. I told him as convincingly as I could that Dakota never came home. Since his shoes and backpack were gone with him, Dad believed me. The cops were called, then an amber alert went out. Searching the woods and sending out search dogs didn't turn up a thing. Dakota was gone as if plucked out of the world. Or swallowed by a monster. I never saw Hazy again. Right now, as I finish this... My first child is sleeping in the bassinet by my bed, her chubby cheeks and cute little mouth working gently as she dreams. It's been two months of beautiful post-birth bliss. No postpartum to be found here. As I watch my little girl sleep, I remember my childhood friend, Hazy the dragon, and I pray. I pray that as she grows up, my little girl stays as sweet as she is now.
0: For a single dad, every moment spent with his child is precious, so precious that those times take on a special meaning. In this tale, shared with us by author Mark Toes, we meet a father and daughter duo who've adopted a particular seaside location as their special place, but sometimes those places that grow to feel comfortable and familiar aren't as safe as they seem. Performing this tale are David Alt and Erica Sanderson. So, grab your beach balls and towels and make sure to wear sunscreen because it's time to visit the secret beach.
7: There she is. Already dressed in her swim gear, she waves and thrusts herself from the doorstep. <laughs> It feels like ages since I last saw her.
5: I've been waiting here for 20 minutes.
7: I am five minutes early. As she sprints over to the car, her oversized backpack flaps violently behind. Hi, Dad. God, I've missed her. I bring her in close and kiss her multiple times on the forehead. What have you got in the bag?
3: Everything. (laughs)
7: She looks even older since she had her long hair chopped off, now sporting a bob that is more befitting of her no-holds-barred approach to everything. In between occasional renditions of Lady Gaga and blowing bubbles with her gum, she spends most of the car journey talking about her nine-year-old life. And that is just fine with me. Her happiness is infectious, and by the time we arrive, she has done what most people can't, made me feel alive, part of something. Before the car fully stops rolling, she opens the passenger door and bounds off towards the empty beach. I quickly remove my T-shirt and jeans and in my overly bright green swim shorts, chase after her across the pebble-infused sand. We giggle and splash our way (laughs) through the warm blue water. Right now, it feels like we are the only two people on the planet. Our secret beach. We found it by accident a few months ago. A little paradise guarded by stunning trees that look older than time. It's our new favorite place. The sun bounces off the water and lights up her face, and she smiles her toothy smile with squinted eyes behind gigantic blue-framed goggles. Three, two, one... Visibility is good in the water, and just as we give each other the thumbs up, a small bright yellow fish darts between us and into the tentacle-like arms of the coral. I point and lead the chase. The change is immediate and disorienting, as though someone has just pressed a button. The light from above that had rejected the rippling tapestry onto the ocean floor no longer filters through. Smudges of non-transparent darkness replace the crystal-clear turquoise water. The bath-like warmth is gone, and my chest immediately feels tighter at the iciness of the water. Urgently, I kick to the surface and take a deep breath, then exhale a small cloud that quickly dissipates. Where is she? Rose? The sun is nowhere to be seen, yet there wasn't a cloud in the sky when we first arrived. The horizon now blends into a single grey tone. I scan the surface of the water, but it gives me nothing but a knot in my stomach. My mind is being overloaded with a torrent of bad thoughts, and it feels like it might snap. Holding my breath, I duck under, but the impossible iciness forces me straight back up. Shit, where is she? I can't stop shaking, I-, I want to scream for help, but there's nobody here. The trees that surround the water now appear contorted and charred. The seagulls that we spotted earlier, flying over the water opportunistically looking for fish, have been replaced by crows. They circle menacingly above as if in search of a less animated me. Rose! I keep hoping I might wake up, but I'm too emotionally charged, too present for this to be anything but real. The water itself is getting thicker as well as colder, like a soup that has been left out. The air has lost its innocence. Gone is the fresh and nostalgic aroma of the beach, replaced by a pungent odour far worse than rotting seaweed. I can taste the evil... I take up another mouthful of air and throw myself back into the icy blackness, but again come up almost immediately, breathless and heart-pounding wildly. Come on! Another gulp of air and I go back under. Again, my body screams at me to break the surface, but I can't. Not without her. Finally, my heart rate slows as my body and mind begin to adapt to the harsh conditions. But... A strange sensation suddenly washes over me, and it's more than just the cold and lack of visibility. I have an overwhelming compulsion to open my mouth and ingest the water as though it is the most natural thing in the world. I'm losing control. It's like the ocean has me under a spell, beguiling me with a powerful and intoxicating promise of serenity. I'm not scared anymore. I let myself surrender to the peace offered by the surrounding darkness. The iciness in my veins has gone, and the pulse in my ear is slowing to a dull beat. Its hypnotic rhythm a soundtrack for the blackness that slowly fills my vision. I feel myself free-falling towards unconsciousness. Rose. Her face flashes in front of me, the smile, the jutting teeth caused by years of relentless thumb-sucking, rose. My chest feels like it's going to explode as I thrash towards the surface, and as I finally break through and inhale the stagnant air on offer, I feel immediate relief to be alive, but can't hold back the tears and the overwhelming feeling of helplessness. It just doesn't add up. We were only four foot deep. I promised my ex-wife, Judy, I wouldn't take her further than that. She was so paranoid, what with all the recent press coverage of the spike in drownings. But I never let her more than a few yards away from me. The news got to me too, all the recent media gloom. Tragic incidents of young children and their parents disappearing, assumed to have drowned. No bodies found. Rose! Oh shit! Immediately I jolt back. Something scaly just hit my leg. What the hell was that? But looking down, I can see nothing but the black void. There is something in here with me though. I know it, I felt it. I kick my legs and thrash my arms around as I retreat slowly backwards, heart racing, expelling rapid fire, wisps of breath. Something emerges ahead, breaking the surface of the water. It looks like Rose. And my heart races with excitement and the promise of relief. I throw myself in and swim frantically towards the shape in the distance. Something brushes against my side then, but I pay no heed, no time for that, and I continue to cut my way through the black water. Everything is going to be okay, I know it! Vulnerable and exhausted, I make slow progress through the viscous liquid that is growing impossibly thicker by the minute. But I hold on to the hope with eyes set on the unmistakable outline of the human head in the distance arms! Christ, my arms! I've got to keep going so close now! And then I see her, and my heart sinks. Her lips are blue, and her skin is as pale as the moon, but the eyes! What's wrong with her eyes? Black, no surrounding white, just black as coal, menacing and otherworldly. It isn't my rose. The long black hair tangled and wet rests on the girl's shoulders, and the black-eyed girl looks straight through me with a cold and blank stare as she continues her approach as if fixed on something else entirely. It seems like a lifetime before my feet find the floor. The sand beneath has been replaced by a surface as sharp as razors, and I can feel my feet being cut to ribbons. I can't stand up. Suspended in the thick blackness, I reach for the girl's shoulders. Where is Rose? I begin to shake her gently at first, but she doesn't respond and I up the tempo until I am violently rocking her from side to side. Her body moves like a ragdoll as though boneless, her skin so cold and clammy. Where is she? Around us more bodies begin to emerge from the water. Young girls and boys all have the same lifeless stare, the pitch black eyes set ahead as they make their way towards the shore. Soon there are dozens of them somberly marching through the black water. It fills me with an unbearable sense of dread. What if... And then I see her at the back of the pack. Immediately I release my grip on the girl and start to swim urgently towards my daughter, pushing some of the other bodies out of the way and screaming her name over and over. But just as I start to draw close, something coils around my leg, snapping me under the water and back into its darkness. Instinctively, I scream and water fills my mouth again. I try and kick it away, but it's too strong, too tightly wrapped. Disoriented and with no light for guidance, I stretch out my arms, but immediately lose some of the skin on my knuckle as it grazes the coral. My lungs are aching for air and my hands are just getting sliced as I try to keep my head and body away from the sharp ocean floor. I have nothing left, this is it. Now to sheer desperation, I yank my leg down hard and grimace as the jagged floor tears through my flesh. The pain is immediate and explosively raw, and I let out an unavoidable gargling scream that uses up the last of my oxygen. I feel the grip around my leg loosen, and I take my chance and kick furiously away. I break the surface, gasping hungrily for air and hacking up more of the black substance. Every part of me hurts like hell. In the distance, though, I can see the shapes of the children nearing the shore and the crows flying overhead as if in escort, their raucous cries continuing. Exhausted and open-mouthed, I start to swim again. Turning my head to the side, I expel some of the slimy black substance and see ripples on the surface. Something is approaching. Kicking my legs as fast as I can, I force my weary arms through the darkness. Ahead, some of the children are already on the sand. A tall man is with them now. He appears to be wearing a large cloak and wide-brimmed hat. They are approaching him. Rose is not far behind them. As I thrash desperately towards the shore, I see the children begin to form two orderly lines, joining hands with their opposites to form a makeshift archway. At the far end stands the tall man with arms extended in a welcoming gesture. I try and maintain momentum, but my leaden arms are screaming at me to stop. More of the liquid enters my mouth, and I feel it slowly making its way down my esophagus like black treacle. I cough and splutter some of it back up and force myself to continue. With roughly 30 yards to go, I feel something brush against my foot, and kicking hard, I make contact with something firm. I'm not giving up on you, Rose. After a few more labored strokes, completely exhausted, I plant my feet down, and there is some relief to feel the smooth rock underneath. The crows have fallen silent, observing the scene on the beach from the nearby blackened trees like a hushed audience before a performance. Rose is on the sand now, and walking through the newly formed arch in a trance-like state. Rose! I make my way awkwardly towards her, stumbling across rocks hidden underneath the moving blanket of darkness. I'm so close, but can only watch as Rose approaches the tall man and kneels before him. The man places his hand on top of her head and begins to speak in a language that I've never heard before. Rose! Finally, I make it onto the shore and launch into a final sprint towards her. And as my feet crunch on the sand, the tall man looks up and snarls, his upper lip revealing a row of razor-sharp teeth. His eyes are black like the others, and it's impossible to gauge his age. His skin is unnaturally smooth and wrinkle-free, yet there are small grey curls that spill from his hat. I get the feeling he's been around forever. The man lifts his hat then, and reaches inside it. I throw myself towards Rose, and as I fling my arms around her, we both go tumbling into the soft sand. I turn in time to see the man pull the ball of light from the hat, and he casts it into the air, illuminating the sky like a flashbulb. Immediately I turn away, blind and confused and terrified of what is going to happen. Rose is in my arms, her cold and clammy skin not comforting at all. And silence. Finally, I open my eyes. They take a while to readjust, but when they do, there is no sign of the other children or the tall man. The smell of the fresh sea air is back, and it invigorates me like a dose of smelling salts. The sun is back, too, unshrouded and providing its warmth once again. I turn to look at Rose, and her grey, lifeless body doesn't give me hope. Her eyes are still black, and there is no movement from her chest. Terrified and desperate, I pinch her nose and put my lips to hers before exhaling deeply. I start the chest compressions then, but nothing. Please... A stream of black, watery tears falls from my face as I cough up some of the black substance that tried to inhabit me. In a lump, it flies out into the sand and writhes around for a while as though alive before burying below. I won't let you go. I repeat the resuscitation once again and thrust my hands onto her chest as though I can physically squeeze the darkness out. It has no effect. She can't be gone. Not my rose. And then a single, strange splutter emerges from her blue lips, followed by a small, glistening black slug that wriggles slowly down her right cheek. It pulsates erratically before finally dropping to the sand and slithering out of sight. Urgently, I roll her onto her side, and she retches more of the foreign substance. No. Finally, she begins to heave in mouthfuls of air. I draw her in and afford myself a smile when I see her eyes, emerald green pupils framed by pure white. She looks back at me with watery eyes full of fright and confusion and questions.
5: I lost my goggles.
7: We called it our secret beach, but we will now remember this place for carrying a much more sinister undertone. Something else visited here today. A dark malevolence that preys on innocence, I wonder where it will go next.
0: When your home gets robbed, it can turn a place of refuge into a scary, alien location. When someone has entered your private and personal sanctuary and upended your life, it's understandable to feel angry. In this tale, shared with us by author Ren Feeney, we meet a woman in this exact situation. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Jessica McAvoy, Addison Peacock, and Jeff Clement. So let's join Tess as she walks through the wreckage of her life. Let's hear her anger, her rage, and let's find out exactly what leads to her vendetta.
8: From the outside, our little house didn't look much different. It still stood on the corner of the street with its mailbox, a crooked sentinel beside our car. The succulents and grasses that dominated the lawn because of the never-ending drought we were experiencing didn't seem any worse for wear. The pale green paint, which Rochelle and I had taken two days off of work to put on the house ourselves, still looked almost new. Nothing stayed new for long in the Los Angeles dust and smog, but it was as close as we were going to get. In fact, if it weren't for the strips of yellow tape barring the door, which read Crime Scene in angry black letters, everything would have seemed as normal as when I'd last been here a week ago. Nothing was normal anymore, though. In one night, both my wife's and my lives had changed. I hadn't even begun coming to terms with this fact, which is why I was back and preparing to enter a house that was explicitly labeled off-limits. That didn't matter to me. I knew what was inside already, and it was my home. I should be able to enter my own home no matter the circumstances. With that in mind, I did my best to ignore the crime scene tape as I went through the front door mentally preparing myself for the quiet nightmare I would find inside. Knowing what to expect still didn't ready me for how it would feel to be back. It would have been all right, I think, if everything hadn't smelled so familiar. It smelled like clean-scented candles and carefully vacuumed carpet. It smelled like the ground coffee we kept in a dish by the sink to overpower the dishes when they were dirty. But underneath everything else... There was the stench of blood and stagnant water. The blood I had expected, but it took me a few moments to source the other scent. Our front door let into a hallway that was separated from the kitchen by a half-wall. On the side of the half-wall nearest me was our pride and joy. A 60-gallon, warm, freshwater fish tank that we had spent the entire time we lived here getting planted, ready for fish, and finally stocked. The sickly smell was coming from the tank. The glass walls were covered in a thin film of algae, which made the light coming from it seem green. Behind the algae, I could see that most of our fish were dead. No one had fed them over the past week, and... From the looks of it, they had turned on each other in desperation. The remains of the fish that had fallen victim to the hunger of their tankmates floated, with bits of flesh tufting out from under their bloated scales, like ruined insulation in the filthy water. I felt a surge of anger as I stared between our decimated fish tank and the large vial of food that was sitting out in plain sight beside it. The state of the tank now was insulting, I realized. We'd worked so hard for our fish, and no one who had clomped through the house in the intervening time between the attack and now could even spare the seconds it would have taken to feed them. They would have taken care of other animals. I fumed to myself as I moved down the hall into the living room, putting the poor tank behind me. Evidence of the early part of the night was all still there, A flannel blanket pulled off to one side from where it had been covering me. Two glasses and two bottles of our favorite red wine, which we'd shared while watching bad TV, now dark and crusty and dry. I wondered if the night would have gone any differently had we not had a bottle each. The alcohol had done wonders to relax us, but when we'd needed our senses, they had been dulled and slow. I stood in the middle of the room, staring at where we had passed the night, tipsy and snuggling. Whatever had been on had been utterly unmemorable. We'd been enjoying each other's company more than we had been paying attention to the screen. We spent most of our Fridays on the couch, watching bad TV. It had been that way since we started dating in college. Neither of us had ever been particularly extroverted preferring instead to cuddle together and recharge our social batteries in comfort and mutual solitude. By the time we'd been married for two years, Friday couch nights were what got us through the work week. I used to sit at my desk on Thursday afternoons, looking at my work calendar and freaking out about everything that still needed to get done, only to pull myself back from the brink of panic and remind myself that in fewer than 24 hours... She and I would be side by side, wine glasses in hand, and take out cartons on the coffee table, ready to take on ancient aliens or the worst of reality TV. I'd smile to myself, take a deep breath, and then make the best of the time I had left at work so that I could leave on Friday afternoon and not spend the weekend stressing about projects. One of her favorite ways to spend Friday couch night, once the wine was gone, was stretched out beside me, head using my thigh as a pillow. She used to grab one of my hands and put it on her head, indicating less than subtly that I should play with her hair. Pet me. I'm tired. I loved playing with her hair. It was dark, long, and thick, the kind of thick that only comes from chemically straightened curls. Sometimes she'd drift off into a half-sleep while my fingers slowly ran through her hair as the TV droned on in the background. Why would we trade this for a night out with strangers if only we hadn't had the wine it, it had let the rest of the night happen and i was walking ever closer to the aftermath the archway that led toward the two back rooms of the house was unusually brightly lit i stood in it for a moment trying to figure out why to my right was the office door solidly shut The light was coming from my left, where the hallway led to our bedroom. The blinds had been pulled up completely and the curtains drawn back, filling the room with sunlight. Even from here I could see what a mess everything was. The window by the bed was shattered, and from my standing place I could see the edge of an ominous dark stain on the carpet. I glanced down at my slashed palms and had a brief vision of scrambling for something, anything that I could protect myself with in the darkness. The shard of glass I'd found with my fingers had been a terrible idea, but it had also been my only option. I couldn't go in there just yet. I needed to work up to it. So I went through the door to the study and stood there for a moment in the dim light, letting kinder memories come to the forefront of my mind. This had been Rochelle's room more than mine. She worked from home as a freelance web designer, and so needed control of the space. Her large, L-shaped desk stood in the back corner away from the door, neatly stacked with papers. Her computer monitor stood nearby, ringed in meticulously color-coded sticky notes. I'd asked her once why she needed so many colors, and she'd laughed at me.
5: (laughs) All my clients get their own color. It helps me make sense of the mess.
8: The room smelled faintly like her, mostly from the candles on the corner table that she lit any time she was under stress, though there was also an underlying scent of the mint body scrub that she liked so much. I closed my eyes for a moment and let myself enjoy the illusion of being close to her, something which I knew I would never be able to experience again. Something which the strong tang of blood from the bedroom wouldn't let me forget. Not even for a moment while standing here in her space. I desperately wanted to rest my head on her shoulder, lace my fingers through hers, run my hand over her hair. It wasn't fair. Turning my back on the door to the study slowly approached the bedroom. I didn't want to see any more than I could from the hallway, but I'd come back for a reason and I needed to continue on. Our bedroom had been the best part of our house. We'd been in the process of slowly replacing our found furniture from college with nicer pieces, gradually transforming our living spaces into places full of what we wanted rather than what we would needed. Our bedroom was the one room where this process was nearly complete. The only holdout was the comforter, which I'd made myself back in high school by sewing together colorful strips of fabric. Over the years, I'd had to patch the seams, sewing and resewing it as edges frayed and stitches gave. The bed it covered dominated the little room but in a pleasant way, sitting low to the floor and radiating the sense that it was perfect to fall into. The walls were a pale blue, with pictures that Rochelle had painted hung here and there, bringing all the colors together. We'd wanted this room to be calming. Now, though, it looked anything but. The comforter was tossed away on one side and tangled and twisted on the other. One of us had gotten free almost immediately upon realizing there was an intruder in the room, while the other had struggled with the blankets as they caught around her legs. I closed my eyes as I heard the bedroom window shatter in my mind, remembering how the noise had made me fall to the floor and begin my mad scramble for protection. Ah! Run! I heard the echo of my own voice in my head as I stared down at the taped outline of a crumpled body at the foot of the bed. This is what I'd come for. This is what I'd needed to see. Right here. This proof that everything was ruined. I sank to my knees, and then curled up inside the tape closing my eyes against the sounds of the struggle that had taken my wife away from me forever. Ah! We had a habit of going to bed at the same time, something which we had been doing since we were dating back in college. We'd sit in the dark on our smartphones, finishing up our web browsing for the day and chatting idly about articles or showing each other cute pictures of animals doing silly things. I've always been anywhere from a light sleeper to a total insomniac. So without fail, she would tie her first, set her phone aside, and curl onto her side facing me. We'd never been big on cuddling to sleep, especially in the summer when our little house was hot. But she would always do something that felt more intimate somehow. Once she had started to get sleepy, one of her feet would stretch out to touch my own, and her hand would seek my bare shoulder cupping it lightly under her fingers. She'd stay like that until she drifted off, and occasionally, as her consciousness drifted, she'd murmur a quiet, I love you, Tess, and gently pep my shoulder for emphasis. Then she'd slip away, and I'd go through the night with her beside me, feeling completely loved. Glass shattered again in my memory, and I curled tighter in an effort to protect myself from it. I loved the feeling of her hand on my shoulder. I was so angry that it had been taken away. It had just been random, unlucky chance that our house had been targeted by some tweaker strung out on drugs, looking for stuff to steal to pay for the next fix. We hadn't deserved to have our happy life stolen, too. That murdering fuck would definitely deserve what was coming next, though. I didn't know how long I lay a ball on the floor, listening to the wind blow through the broken window. My sense of time hadn't been great recently, but I suspected that it was time to go. I'd come here for closure, but hadn't found any at all. And I had an important place to be. I climbed dejectedly out of the rusty stain on the floor and moved back to the way I'd come. Certain of two things, I never wanted to see this house again. And I wanted revenge. It was nearly time to get it. Two streets over from my old home, there was a little apartment complex. On the bottom floor was a young college student who lived alone with two cats and a big mess. Soon I was looking through her patio door at a small dining room table stacked with piles of books, binders, and papers. She wasn't home at the moment, so I walked through the sliding glass door and made myself at home. The cats hissed and ran when they saw me, retreating to the bedroom to hide underneath a bed that looked like it hadn't been made in weeks. I ignored the yowls coming from it as I settled myself into the far corner of the bedroom, where I could observe the main room of the apartment without being seen. The girl came home an hour or so later. I heard her fumbling with her keys in the hall, and her muffled voice sounded somewhat distracted. She must be talking to someone on the phone, because the spaces where replies would have been were silent.
1: Mom, I'm fine.
8: She stepped into the living room, slumping her backpack to the floor and closing the door behind her. Her eyes were bloodshot, and the dark circles beneath them made her thin face seem almost skull-like.
3: Listen, I'm locking the door.
8: Can you hear it? I watched her take her phone from her ear, hold it to the deadbolt, and twist the knob. A faint voice came from the phone, concern evident even from where I was standing. I
4: know. I know. But I already call you every time I walk home from campus.
5: If something happens, you're going to be the first to know.
8: She grimaced, and I heard the voice of her mother again as it rose in anger.
5: Sorry. You're right, that wasn't funny.
8: The girl stepped around her backpack and disappeared through the arch into the apartment's tiny kitchen.
1: Food, kitties.
8: There was an expectant pause, but my bedroom fellows refused to budge from their hiding spot. The girl's sigh carried across the apartment as she re-entered the living area.
3: <sighs> Mom? Mom, I need to go. I'm hungry, and there's a paper due at midnight.
8: She sank onto her battered couch and began to unlace her scuffed canvas sneakers.
5: Yep, same time tomorrow. I love you too.
8: When the call was over, she tossed her phone carelessly onto the couch and padded back into the kitchen in stockinged feet. She reappeared about a minute later, carrying a massive sandwich, and settled herself down by her laptop, back to me, amidst the piles of papers and books at her dining room table. Kitties? When the cats didn't appear for a second time, she turned her head and looked toward the dark door of the bedroom, face caught somewhere between annoyance and worry. I remained still. It wasn't quite time for her to see me yet. Instead of rising to look for the cats, she rummaged through the mess on the table for a small bottle of pills and swallowed one dry. That done, she turned back to her computer and began scrolling through a long document as she ate her dinner. The paper's looming deadline was clearly taking priority. Once the sandwich was gone, she settled into an impressively focused rhythm of flipping through books and typing that lasted for about an hour. She did pause occasionally to look around the apartment or to run her hand down the back of her neck and smooth hair that seemed to be periodically standing on end. I remained in the corner, well aware that I was the cause of her unease. The consistent clack of her keyboard keys soon reduced to single-word bursts as she began the process of editing what she'd put down. She only rose once to brew a cup of tea before returning to her work with a frustrated groan.
4: (sighs)
1: Ugh.
8: Another half-hour of editing passed before she threw her hands into the air.
1: Fucking finally!
8: A few final clicks sounded as she submitted her paper. Then she pushed away from the dining table and rose, groaning and rubbing at her eyes. Oh, God. She began to move for the bedroom door, yawning and stretching and turning out the lights in the main room. I stayed right where I was, watching as she came closer, anticipating the sudden brightness as she flicked on the light. When it came, she froze, staring at me in disbelief. I didn't need a mirror or the look of pure terror on her face to tell me how I looked. I'd lived what had been done to me, after all. For effect, I raised my hands toward her showing off the slash marks left on my palms when I reached for a shattered piece of glass to defend myself. The edges of the cuts were puckered and torn, and the lack of blood left it looking like someone had ripped grimacing mouths into the papery skin of each hand. My true mouth worked, but no sound came, because at my neck there was another wound, deep and brutal, from my attacker's knife impulsively stabbing to cut off my screams. She, living, stared at me, recently dead, for three long seconds before screaming and running for the front door.
5: Ah!
8: She managed to grab her phone as she passed by the couch. I stayed where I was when the front door slammed shut, and I heard her bare feet on tile as she sprinted down the hall and out the front door of the apartment building. I was able to see her from the bedroom window, standing under a streetlight and checking her pockets, then dialing a number into her phone. Her voice was faint, but it still sounded through the cheap glass of the window between us.
5: Vanessa? Van, come get me now. I just saw a
3: fucking ghost in my bedroom. No, I don't have my keys. They're in with the dead lady, and I'm not going back in there she's dead because there's a gash in her throat and she's fucking white no I haven't been sleeping okay I'm never going to sleep okay again
8: and then the sound from the other end of the apartment that I'd been waiting for the entire night a shattering of glass from the patio door as a man fist wrapped in an old flannel shirt punched through it to get at the lock the girl I'd scared from the apartment jumped in response to the noise
3: It's breaking shit, Van. I am being haunted.
6: Come get me. No, don't call the
8: cops. She hissed and dropped the phone from her ear as her friend ended the call to make good on her threat.
6: Damn it. I'm gonna be institutionalized.
8: But she didn't budge from underneath the street lamp. Good. She was safe there. I turned from the window and moved to the threshold of the bedroom to get another look at my killer. It had been dark in the bedroom when he burst in on me and Rochelle, and it was dark now, but my eyes no longer needed light to see. He had the stringy body of the chronic drug user, moving about on withered limbs as he furtively grabbed for anything that might be worth stealing. He was either desperate or too high to notice that even from the outside it was clear the pickings in this apartment would be slim the girl's laptop was already in his arms and he was eyeing her television possibly debating if he could get it out without being noticed he shook his head after a moment and turned for the kitchen i let him go and waited i needed to time this just right the rummaging i heard from where he was quickly grew agitated He'd clearly been expecting a better take, and I'm sure his nerves had been run ragged by drugs and fear, considering the fact that he'd recently become a murderer. He cursed and emptied a drawer onto the floor. I waited, still as stone. Eventually, he gave up on the kitchen entirely and returned to the living room, staring once again at the TV. (laughs) With a frustrated growl, he set the laptop down on the couch and moved to start yanking wires and plugs loose from its back. I chose that moment to move into his peripheral vision, and he reacted with all the grace of a pile of twigs. His head turned, his eyes bulged, and he stumbled backwards. tripped over the coffee table and landed on his ass breaking through the cheap particle board a look of crazed recognition crossed his face as i stepped closer and he began to crab walk backward on his hands and legs trying to get away i smiled down at him
7: no, no
1: you're you're dead you you're you're fucking dead
8: When I nodded, he rolled over and clambered over the couch intent on getting to the patio door.
1: Uh, uh,
5: You you can't be here. You can't. You can't. You can't. You can't.
8: I stayed right where I was, because I could see the flashlight beam that had illuminated the shattered glass and forgotten flannel on the cement of the patio outside. The cops had made it. The beam hit him next, blinding him.
0: Jesus. Freeze! Hands where I could see them.
8: My murderer stared uncomprehendingly between me and the cop.
0: Is this a fucking joke?
8: I smiled at him again. Ah! Ah! And he screamed again, just as the cop again ordered him to put his hands up again. The thief obeyed with drug-addled slowness, though he was still staring at me.
0: Hey! Eyes on me! Is someone there with you?
8: A shaking finger pointed in my direction, and the cop stared at me unseeingly before keying his shoulder mic and radioing for his partner to come meet him. To my murderer, he patiently told him that no one else was in the room. So what was he pointing at, exactly?
5: You can't see her? (laughs) Shh! She's right fucking
8: there! I gave the cop a jaunty wave with one of my wounded hands.
1: You are dead! You are fucking dead! I can see where I stabbed you! Christ! This is
0: not happening! This is not happening! Get down on the floor!
8: It took a few false starts for him to obey. When he finally went down... I sat beside him to watch the rest of the night play out. The girl I'd scared from the apartment soon learned that an intruder, not a ghost, had been found in her home. But when asked to identify him, could only shake her head.
4: That's not who I saw.
8: Said intruder, for his part, was reduced to a gibbering mess by my presence and kept telling anyone who would listen that I couldn't be there because I was dead. He had killed me. I was dead. This caused the cops to search the apartment, but when no bodies were discovered, they decided to book him for robbery. They cuffed him and brought him to the station. I rode along, of course. I stood behind the detective during the interview, which made the job a bit harder but it also had the side effect of making the man confess to my murder, as well as a string of robberies in the area. In the face of the impossible, and with all the drugs coursing through his system, he just couldn't keep it together. There would be ample evidence in my home to convict him, I knew. The blood at the window hadn't been mine, and matching it to him with a DNA test would be quick and simple in this day and age. The cops had already swabbed his cheek, so it would all be linked together soon enough when the detectives who had interviewed him presented him with a printed statement, he signed it and said he didn't want a lawyer. I think he hoped doing all this would make me leave him be. When they led him to his cell after hours of interviewing and questioning, and he saw me following behind them, he began screaming again.
1: What more do you want? I said I did it. Go the fuck away.
8: What more did I want? I wanted my life back, but that had been stolen from me with ultimate finality. And since I couldn't have what I wanted, I'd decided to take the next best thing. His life. He was never going to hurt anyone ever again, and I was going to make sure that the long, long years he had left would make it impossible to forget the one that he had. If he hadn't severed my vocal cords with his knife in a panic, I would have told him to get used to seeing me around, because thanks to him, I had nothing but time. And that time was best spent, I'd decided, by making him seem crazy enough to be locked away alone for the rest of his miserable, murdering life. With any luck, by the time I was done with him, he really would be out of his mind. Just me and you, fucker. I walked through the bars of his cell and sat down beside him, offering him a thumbs up.
1: God, please, just go away. Go
8: away! Just me and you.
0: In our final tale, we're introduced to Clyde, a man who's moved out into the country to escape the hustle and bustle of city life. But as shared with us by author C.P. Riggs, his new neighbor, Tommy, well, he's a nice old fella, and the two soon become friends. But when Tommy raises the issue of strange noises in the night, it's not long before Clyde begins to hear them too. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, jesse cornett jessica mcavoy graham rowett mike Delgadio, and ellie hirschman so hole up in your cabin in the middle of nowhere and enjoy the isolation and maybe think twice when you're told hurry come on over
3: I hated the lights of the city. It seemed like you couldn't get away from them. Even with the blackout curtains, it would creep in around the edges, and it never stopped. In the city, the lights never went out. Ever. It was a small little cabin out in the hills of East Tennessee, far away from the city, from the noise, from the go-go-go from the lights. The realtor told me it was originally a vacation cabin for some old couple in New England, but they passed away a few years ago and their kids were trying to sell it. Turns out, not many people are in the market for cabins in the middle of nowhere. Who would have guessed, right? It was perfect for me, though. Just a little one-bedroom with a living room in front and a kitchen in the back, all connected by a long hallway. I still had good internet so I could work, and most of all, it was quiet. The only sounds were the birds chirping and the wind through the old trees. It was wonderful. The first night alone was more difficult than I expected. I didn't grow up in the woods, and the forests in Appalachia are thick. And I mean thick. I walked out on the porch after it got dark. The light from the windows didn't reach far. Beyond that little rim, black shapes loomed. Something about the darkness made every sound louder. The woods, in every direction, seemed to come alive with noise and sound as soon as the sun disappeared. Owls, frogs, crickets, toads all contributing something and blending together into one long, loud, buzzing noise, undercut by the pulsing whine of cicadas. I could see to the edges of the closest trees, standing like sentinels around the little clearing where the cabin sat. But the darkness past that was still just as thorough and complete. I was about to go inside when a little speck of light caught my eye maybe a hundred yards through the trees. It looked like another porch light, just barely visible through the trees if I was at the perfect angle. I almost missed it, and if there had been anything else to see in that blackness, I probably would have. But it caught my attention immediately. I didn't know I had a neighbor. The realtor hadn't mentioned it. I wondered what kind of person would live so far away from everything, and then I remembered. Right. Right. Me. The next day, I was working on my laptop in the living room when someone tapped on the window. He had to be pushing 75, at least. The old overalls he wore were stained and frayed and hung off of him badly, like he'd been a lot heavier once. His beard was entirely white and just barely touched his chest. He wasn't bald, but he wasn't far from it either, with just a few thin white strands combed down flat. His face was dark, like it had seen a lot of sun over the years. And he walked with an old piece of hickory wood that he used as a cane. His eyes were the color of the sea on a sunny day. Hi there. Can I help you?
1: Well, I hope so. I live just next door."
3: He turned and pointed a shaking finger toward where I had seen the light the night before. Oh, sorry, I I didn't know. It's good to meet you, man. I, I'm Clyde. Uh, Clyde. It's good to
1: meet you, Clyde. <laughs> I'm Tommy. I figured I'd come over and introduce myself. Saw you moving in yesterday, but I just couldn't make it over here for dark. And can't go strutting
3: through the woods after dark anymore. What, strong man like you? Sure you could. A smile split his face, and he started laughing. His teeth were coffee stained, and I noticed he was missing one or two of them.
1: (laughs) Ah, I think you... And
3: I were going to get along just fine. <laughs> you want to come in? I got some beer in the fridge. No, I shouldn't. Oh, it's just one beer. It won't hurt anything. Well, there
1: you go twist my arm. <laughs> you talked me into it. <laughs>
3: So, how long have you lived here? We were both on our second beer. He sat with his cane in front of him, drumming his fingers gently on the handle. He smiled and reached for the beer with that same smirk on his face. His hands shook a little as he drank.
1: Well, let's see. Today is Thursday. So, my
3: entire life. He laughed and nodded and then shook his head sadly. Long time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: a little bit. Used to be lots of people living out here, though, a long time ago. Really? Oh, yeah. Coal mines used to have, uh, oh, probably 200 men or more. That was when I was little, though. A bunch of families live out here. About all of them's gone now, though. I'm about all that's left.
3: Well, there's Clintwood. That's pretty near, all things considered. Not everyone's gone.
1: Clintwood ain't home, son. It's 12 miles away, and... It just... It it just ain't... (sighs) No. I expect once I'm gone... This place probably won't get any attention until some idiot falls down one of the shafts up near the mines and gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: that's the truth. I I know, but it's just funny how you said it. What moved you out here? I uh, just wanted some peace and quiet. Yeah? Yeah, just some peace and quiet. I can appreciate it peace and quiet. It's actually one of
1: the reasons I came over. I couldn't sleep last night for the noise.
3: I frowned, trying to figure out what he was talking about. He shifted uncomfortably in his chair and looked down at his feet.
1: Well, all that banging kept me up until morning. Banging? <laughs> no, I don't mean being that nosy neighbor or that crotchety old man beating on your door or anything. I I really don't. Please don't take it that way. I just have a hard time sleeping as is. You understand? And...
3: uh, What? Banging? He leaned back and blinked a couple times, surprised.
1: Well, the banging last night. It went on for... Hell, hours. Sounded like you were over here banging on a piece of wood with a
3: hammer or something. I went to bed around ten, Tommy. I slept all night.
1: You weren't over here doing anything. No repairs
3: or anything. No, honest. I looked him in the eye, trying to show I was telling the truth. He screwed his mouth up and looked down at his feet. You didn't hear it? I was exhausted from moving. I was asleep before my head hit the pillow. What did it sound like? He looked around for a second, then grabbed one of the empty beer bottles. Well, sort of like... it. He banged the empty bottle on the table gently.
1: Then... then a pause, and then...
3: but a lot louder. Did you have your TV on? Or maybe your hot water heater was making noise? Television don't get
1: that loud. The water heater thing could be it, but I swear it sounded like it was coming from over here.
3: He slid the empty bottle back across the table and frowned. I shrugged. I'm sorry, Tommy. I I wasn't doing anything. I'll keep an eye out for something to make sure, but I got nothing.
1: Well, shit. Now I feel like a jackass coming
3: over here and jumping on your case. No, no, no. Please don't. I'm glad you came over. I didn't even know I had a neighbor until I saw your porch light last night. I'm glad I got to meet you.
1: Well, you seem like a good guy, Clyde. I'd love to have you over for dinner sometime. You might have to help
3: me a little, but I'll make some damn good cornbread if you like some. I'd love some, Tommy, and I'd love to help you cook. Just tell me when you're free. I'll bring the beer. Well, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> he nodded and struggled to his feet. Oh. He finished his last sip of beer and laid it on the table.
1: Oh, uh, well, but I need to be heading out. I still got things to need done today. If you need anything, though, you come over and tell me,
3: deal? <laughs> he held out a wrinkled old hand, and we shook. Deal. We walked back down the hall to the front door, the old man's cane thumping on the hardwood. you
1: be good, Clyde.
3: He waved as he stepped off the porch. I watched him go as he hobbled back through the trees, picking his way under branches and between roots easier than I ever could. And before I knew it, he disappeared entirely into the trees. I walked back in and took the three bottles out to the recycling bin. I'd hardly touched my second one. The thought of weird banging noises out here sort of made my stomach churn. The thought that I never even heard them... Made it worse. Dark comes on quicker out here than it did in the city. The sun sinks in behind the hills, and the shade under the trees deepens and grows until it's one big shapeless mass that presses in against you. The fireflies blink about for a while, but even they disappear eventually. I was already in bed when it started. I wasn't quite asleep, but I was close. The first night wasn't easy, but I was so tired, I fell asleep quick. The second night, though, I wasn't so tired, and the feeling of being in a new place really began to take hold. I could hear the sounds of the woods even through the closed windows. I think I'd been laying there for about an hour when it started, far away. I don't hear this. I don't hear this. God damn it. I threw the bedsheet off and swung my feet onto the floor, then padded through the house in my underwear, flicking lights on as I went. Bedroom light. Hallway light. Living room light. Second living room light. Porch light. It sounded like someone was hitting a dead tree with a sledgehammer. I peeked out one of the windows, but I couldn't see anything. So I unlocked the door and stepped out onto the porch. The days were just a little uncomfortably warm for spring, but the nights were still uncomfortably cool, especially with the wind blowing. And it was blowing hard whipping the trees about with the sound of shifting leaves. There was nothing out there. Nothing. It sounded like it was coming from the direction of Tommy's house. I craned my neck, trying to see anything, maybe catch a glimpse of his porch light. I finally found the angle, and sure enough, it was there. I squinted, but I still couldn't see anything beyond the dark outline of trees. Nothing. I couldn't think of anything to do about the knocking so i turned to go back in the house hey. the knocking stopped immediately and i stood stone still hey. did tommy have a wife he didn't mention it did she think it was me out there making the noise I waited for some kind of response or for the knocking to start back, but all I heard were the constant chirps and whines and hoots that filled the space left behind. I waited for fifteen minutes before I went back inside, listening, but no more sounds ever came. Sometimes when I'm alone at night, when I can't sleep, I remember that decision to just go back inside. I remember it, and I wonder. The next day, I managed to steal a free minute between all the emails and phone calls to take a break. Officially, it was supposed to be my lunch, but since I wasn't hungry, I decided to walk over and talk to Tommy to see if he had heard the banging again. The woods are quiet during the day, just the wind and the birds. Even in the shade, it was hot and muggy and mosquitoes buzzed around my face constantly no matter how much I swatted. It smelled a bit like rain, just a little, but the sky overhead was a brilliant blue. I trudged through the trees, nearly tripping over roots and wondering if this or that plant was poison ivy. I remembered how Tommy had hobbled through without a bit of trouble, and I felt a little ashamed. The old man's house was the opposite of mine in almost every respect. Mine, plopped down in a little clearing by New Englanders, seemed like a foreign invader in comparison to his. The trees in the underbrush grew almost right to his front door, with just the tiniest little clearing that held a gray little fire pit besides a couple of lawn chairs. His house looked less like it was built on the land and more like it was grown from it. The walls were river stones fit together with some kind of mortar that looked like mud. And the door was old wood, clearly homemade. A single power line ran off from the house to somewhere in the trees. It looked like a cross between a hunter's cabin and Ted Kaczynski's. I finally made it to the front door and was just about to knock when I heard it. Here and gone so quick, I wasn't sure it even happened. I looked around, trying to figure out where it came from, but I was alone as far as I could tell. I strained my ears, but all I could hear was birdsong. I told myself I was being paranoid and stupid and went to knock again, but before I could even get my (laughs) fist up to the door, the giggling started again, louder and longer. It sounded like it was just behind the door. Maybe Tommy does have a wife, I thought. Maybe they're... Oh, no. The image of the old man having sex with an equally wrinkled old woman flashed extremely vividly through my head, and I shuddered at the thought. I shook my head and then shook it harder, trying to get the image out. I figured I would come back later and made my way up the path back to the woods. The giggling came a few more times, <laughs> loud and always short, like a sound bite played again and again. But I ignored it and kept walking, more focused on avoiding the poison ivy. Around seven, the clouds started to appear through the leaves overhead, dark purple and angry-looking, threatening hard storms. Behind them came a cool wind that took the sting out of the stifling heat. I turned off the air conditioner and opened the windows so that I could listen to the thunder booming overhead, warning everyone, get to cover. Everything quieted beneath the thunder. The birdsong and the buzzing insects either stopped or flew away. All that was left was the wind blowing the storm closer and closer with the clean, sharp scent of ozone. At 11, the rain started. At 12, the banging started. I was watching Mulan on my laptop when I heard it. The little red dragon had just introduced himself. I paused the movie and waited. I wasn't scared, actually. I I was annoyed. Work was long and annoying, and I just wanted to watch my movie. I didn't even bother looking for the cause this time. I knew I wouldn't be able to see anything outside, especially not with the rain coming down. So I unpaused the movie and tried to ignore it. I didn't make it another two minutes before a voice called out. I started a little and the laptop nearly fell off my lap. Whoever it was, it sounded like they were right outside. It sounded like Tommy, at least, sort of. I set the laptop down and walked outside. the porch light barely stretched farther than five feet or so out into the wet, rainy darkness. Hey, Tommy? Is that you? Hey! What are you doing? Come over! I looked around, trying to figure out where he was. I couldn't see him, but he he didn't sound far away. Where are you? I finally figured out what was wrong with his voice. There was no emotion to it, no inflection. Even yelling, it just sounded flat and… dead. Where are you? What are you doing out here? I thought I got an idea of the direction he was yelling from. I squinted into the darkness. Hurry what? What are you talking about? Still, no emotion. It was like someone had just turned the volume up. My eyes started to adjust to the dark and I could just barely make out Tommy's outline. He was just outside of the circle of light reaching away from the porch in the house. Tommy, what are you doing? It's storming! I strained and squinted, trying to see what in the fuck was going on, but all I could see was the shape of him. A dark outline against a black canvas, swaying slightly. Lightning split the sky, splashing light across everything for just the barest second. And I saw... nothing. The lightning rolled again, and I was sure... There was nothing there at all. As soon as it went dark again, though, the outline reappeared, swaying back and forth. over! over! I backed inside and slammed the door locking it and holding it shut with my hands, afraid something would come barreling through it at any second. For a second, the voice stopped, and I tried to listen over the rain. I jumped away from the door. Whatever it was, it was directly on the other side. I ran over and slammed the window closed, trying to look out onto the porch, Even in the light, though, there was nothing there. I looked out into the darkness. Tommy stood there, swaying. I remembered the other windows and ran through the house, slamming them shut and locking them as quick as my shaking hands could manage. When I shut and locked the last window, I leaned against the wall, frantically trying to figure out what I should do. I remembered the landline in the kitchen and ran down the hallway to it. Come on, come on, come on, please. The line clicked and someone picked up the other end. Hello? Hello! Hi! I'm off Rural Route 67 and I need help! Someone's trying to break into my house! Please send help! Please hurry! Hello? Hello? The voice on the other end crackled for a moment. I slammed the receiver back on the telephone and then ripped the cord out of the wall. The yelling outside stopped, and for a moment, the rain was all I could hear. Somehow, that scared me more. I crept back down the hallway to the living room as quietly as I could manage, and peeked out of the window. The shape was still out there, but I could make out something new, like a flash of white. Teeth? Was it... Smiling? Tommy didn't have teeth that white, or even all of them. That couldn't be Tommy out there. The thing out in the rain didn't move. I moved out of the window and toward the door, expecting it to come crashing in at any moment. I realized I was gritting my teeth, grinding them together, and my hands were clenched so tight that my knuckles were a pale, bony white. Hey, go! Get out of here, fuck off! A shadow moved back and forth under the door like a dog trying to figure out how to get past something in its way. It went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, sniffing quietly. Then the porch light went out, and the shadow disappeared. The night continued like that. It crept slowly around the house all night, tapping on the walls, and sometimes whispering, sometimes shouting, come over. All the while, the rain beat down outside, and the thunder rang and boomed overhead. It started to get cooler, and when I peeked over the windowsill, I saw that a fog had clawed its way from the ground to blanket everything. I stayed in the living room, where everything was brightest. Every light in the house was on. I even lit a candle, the only one I had, and fished out my little LED flashlight. I didn't know what the light was to it, if it even was anything, but the little flashlight was comforting somehow. At the very least, it seemed not to like it. I had the briefest idea to run, but where would I have gone? The only person nearby was Tommy, and either he was part of everything, or it had already gotten to him. I wasn't sure which. It didn't really matter which. At four, the tapping and the noises stopped. A minute later, the kitchen lights went out. They didn't just go out, but shattered with the sickening crack that echoed through the house as loudly as the thunder overhead. And just like that, half the house was dark. Thirty minutes later, the hallway light went out. I was curled in the corner of the living room, as far away as I could get from the front door in the hallway. My bedroom light, though, was still on, spraying a thin yellow glow out into the hallway. Twenty minutes, and it went out too. The living room was all that was left two lamps, a candle, and my flashlight. The rain stopped. I waited then in the quiet. I hated the rain, but when it stopped, I wished desperately for it to come back. The quiet was worse. The only sounds were the rumbles of thunder, quieter and farther away each time as the storm receded. The fog grew thicker and pressed itself against the house, a white sheet just beyond the windows. Everything took on a cold and clammy feeling, and my nervous shaking turned into a cold shivering. The tapping started again on the wall, separating the bedroom and the living room. I clicked the flashlight to make sure it worked. It moved back and forth across the wall, like someone tapping to find a stud. The lamp closest to the hallway flickered. The light pulsed brightly a few times, and the bulb shattered. I bit my lip to keep from screaming, but the smell of the burning glass and smoking coils made my stomach churn. I was afraid I might vomit, and I bit my lip harder to try and force the bile down. Ten minutes later, the one beside the couch did the same. All that was left was the candle, the little flickering flame that danced and sputtered in its little glass holder, the shadows writhing and wriggling all around it, trying to snuff it out. The tapping moved down the bedroom wall and into the hallway, sometimes sounding off the floors, sometimes the walls. It got slower, heavier, closer to the banging I had heard earlier. The last one was just around the corner of the hallway, inches out of sight. Mm. I wanted to shout at it, but I was too terrified. My voice was gone. It had already fled, screaming into the night. I couldn't manage anything more than a low shudder. I watched the candle. My whole world became that little dancing flame as I poured every part of my being into trying to will it to stay lit, to not leave me alone. It burned for close to fifteen minutes, alone on the table between me and the hallway, between me and it. The sentinel between me and whatever was in all that darkness. If I could just keep going until the sun came up, maybe I'd be fine. So I watched it, and I watched it, and I wished, and I prayed. Then it slowed. Then it sputtered. Then it went out. I didn't even wait a second before I clicked the flashlight on and aimed it at the hallway. The light was dazzling after the little candle, and the white hue bleached everything of color. The tapping didn't stop, or the voices.
6: Hey, come over. Hurry.
3: I held that little flashlight out, arms shaking, until the light started to flicker. First once, then twice, faster and faster, until it became the constant flicker of an old movie projector. I tried shaking it and hitting it, but it continued to flicker ever faster, and a shadow appeared on the wall. A black hand, dark as charcoal. Pulled its way around the corner, nails white as bone. It wrapped itself around the opening, gripping it tight. I took a deep breath. Just don't let it hurt. Just don't let it hurt. A long stream of light cut through the window and splashed against the living room wall. The hand receded back into the darkness of the hallway. And as it did, the flashlight's flickering slowed until it was once again a steady beam of light. I peeked over the windowsill to see two circular yellow lights facing the house like great shining eyes. Headlights. Headlights cutting through the creeping fog. I slid the window open with one hand while I kept the flashlight facing the hallway. When it was open enough... I crawled through it as quick as I could, expecting a black hand to wrap around my leg at any moment. The moment I was out, I ran towards the lights, waving my arms and the flashlight, afraid at any moment they might back up and pull away, thinking they'd just found a crazy man out in the woods. Instead, more lights came on, blue lights on the top of the car. The driver's side door opened, and a heavy bald man with the 70s porno mustache stepped out.
1: What are you doing?
3: There was no comfort in his voice, just gruff authority, the voice of a bully that found a career. I tried to explain, but all I could do was point back through the tendrils of curling white mist. There, please, it's in there, I... The lights? The other door opened and a much younger, much thinner man stepped out. He was pale and looked like he might throw up. He looked at the fat man, who nodded and then stepped around the car towards me. You're okay. He was trying to be calming, but his hand was shaking and his voice quivered. Okay, let's just sit you down and... The fat man spat on the ground, then drew his gun and started walking towards the house.
1: We can't let him get away.
3: Backup's on its way. Just... just wait.
1: You saw the neighbor. You really want to risk letting that get away? Stay with him.
3: He stalked off, gun in hand, through the wet grass. The thin cop watched him go. And what little color his face still had drained away. That cop never came out. Two more squad cars arrived 20 minutes later, right as the gray of morning started to creep in around the edges of the clearing. Then two state troopers, and then an ambulance. They set me in the back of the ambulance and gave me a blanket. The cops all talked in a big group with serious looks on their faces, and every few seconds one of them looked at me. I rode back to Clintwood with the thin cop and an old trooper. Nobody talked. The radio stayed off. The only sounds were wet tires on wet asphalt and the hum of the engine. I wrapped the blanket around me tighter as the rain-soaked landscape slid past. They sat me in a cold, sterile room in the police station, under bright LED lights, and left me there, alone. Eventually, though, a man came in. A man whose uniform consisted of a yellow tie and khakis with big, thick glasses. He sat down on the other side of the metal table and pulled a small notepad from his pocket.
4: Hello, Clyde.
3: I nodded at him.
4: My name is Detective Cooper.
3: I nodded again, and he adjusted his glasses.
4: Do you have any idea what happened
3: tonight? No, something... I shook my head. He scratched something on his notepad I couldn't see.
4: Any idea what that something was?
3: I shook my head. Is Tommy okay? Your neighbor? I nodded. He adjusted his glasses again, even though they didn't need adjusting.
4: I'm afraid he's dead. What happened to him?
3: He sat the notepad face down on the table and looked at me with something that was close to pity.
4: Please trust me, Clyde, when I tell you you don't want to know.
3: I looked down at my feet and the blue tile on the floor.
4: Do you have any idea what happened at all?
3: Tommy told me he heard banging noises. Banging noises? Yeah, like wood blocks banging together or something. Did you hear them? At first, no, but then night before last, I heard them while I was in bed, and they started up again last night before... Everything else. He picked up his notepad and scribbled on it. That
4: was when you called 911.
3: I nodded and he kept scribbling.
4: Why did you hang up?
3: I remembered the voice crackling on the other end. Because I didn't hear anyone on the other end. I, I thought the line was dead.
4: If you hadn't hung up, we could have found you sooner. The cops they sent out didn't know someone else had moved in out that way, so they thought it must have been the old man that called. Why did they come to my house, then?
3: His pencil stopped scribbling for a second, and he answered without looking at me.
4: They were checking to see if the killer might have tried to hide next door. You apparently startled them a bit when you came running out like you did. You're lucky they didn't shoot.
3: His pencil started scribbling again.
4: I'm afraid you aren't allowed to return to your home at present. Due to what happened to Officer Chattery, it's currently a crime scene. I can't imagine you're too keen to return, though.
3: He peered at me over the rim of his glasses, and I shook my head.
4: Is there anywhere we can
3: take you or anyone we can contact? Uh, My parents live a couple hours away near Nashville. I can go stay with them. He flipped his notebook closed and put his pencil back into the pocket of his button-up.
4: Probably best to be around family right now, anyway.
3: I nodded. He stood.
4: Come on. We'll see how we're going to get you there. And get you some coffee. You look cold.
3: We walked out into the hallway, just as sterile and cold as the room we just came from. At the end, we turned a corner. And Detective Cooper ran right into a harassed looking young man carrying a stack of files that scattered everywhere when the young man lost his balance. Please, sorry, sir. Papers covered the floor files, forms, pictures. I knelt down to help him pick them up. And then I realized what the files concerned. The pictures were of Officer Chatry, a large man with a mustache. I recognized my bedroom in the pictures. He was sitting on my bed, leaned against the headboard like he had been propped up. I felt the vomit rising in my throat when I looked closer, and I thought I might scream. His eyes were gone, and in their place, severed fingers were stuffed into the sockets, all pointing straight toward the camera. His mouth hung open in a silent, horrified scream.
0: As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc.,